we start with a, the perspective of a historian. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Gerard de Groot, who is Professor of Modern History at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Uh, he's also the best-selling author of a number of books on 20th century history, including one about the space race and others about other technical aspects of history. So, Professor de Groot, if you would like to uh, give us the historian's perspective, please. Your Royal Highness, um, Your Excellency, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for having me here today. Um, and I'm, I, it's, I find it a thrill, especially since so far this morning the theme has been cooperation. Um, and I welcome that, especially since for the majority of the past 50 years, uh, it's been competition, not cooperation, that has shaped much of what has been achieved in space. And here I think um, that has actually limited the achievement. It's that competition which has produced some spectacular achievements, but it has, I think, limited um, in a grander sense what has been achieved. So I uh, welcome this cooperation. And it's the competition that I want to talk about today. And I start in May 1960 uh, when President Dwight Eisenhower discovered to his horror that NASA had plans to go to the moon. And he was so worried by this revelation that he asked his science advisor, George Kistiakovsky, um, to investigate. And Kistiakovsky was already skeptical about manned spaceflight. Uh, and he formed a committee headed by the Brown University chemistry professor, Donald Hornig. Uh, the committee reported on the 16th of December, 1960. This was already after the election um, of that year. And they called NASA's plans, quote, a complex and costly adventure whose only purpose lies in the political desire to be the first nation to send a man into orbit. The members of the committee doubted whether the presence of man adds to the variety or quality of the observations which can be made. Now, when Eisenhower discussed the Hornig report with his uh, closest advisors, the mood was one of bewilderment. Laughter erupted when someone suggested that after the reaching Mar the moon, NASA would probably want to go to Mars. Since Eisenhower had always been of the opinion that space ventures should be judged entirely by their scientific or military worth, he was not prepared to go into space purely for political reasons. And therefore, he decided to veto Apollo, and that was his last important space-related act as president. And then, of course, came John Kennedy, Shortly before the Sputnik launch in 1957, then-Senator Kennedy insisted that rocket research was a waste of money and poured scorn on the idea of exploring space. But Kennedy was a clever politician who recognized how the Sputnik embarrassment could be used to his advantage. Uh, he, space offered Kennedy a way to look dynamic and youthful and modern. 
And I quote, because we fail to recognize the impact that being first in outer space would have, the impression began to move around the world that the Soviet Union was on the march and we were standing still. This is what we have to overcome, that psychological feeling that the United States has reached maturity, that maybe our high noon has passed. Notice that Kennedy did not mention what would be achieved in space, but rather what could be achieved on Earth by shooting rockets skyward. What he failed to mention was that the U.S. was already ahead in the space race. Between 1957 and 1960, she successfully launched 26 uh, satellites and two space probes, while the Soviet figures during that period were six and two. Now, after the election was won, Kennedy quickly backpedaled on his promises. Unwilling to spend huge sums of money on seemingly pointless adventures, he asked Professor Jerome Wiesner of MIT to provide the intellectual justification for mothballing the program. The Wiesner Committee, reporting on the 10th of January, 1961, 10 days before Kennedy's inauguration, criticized the way the enthusiasm for space travel had moved attention away from the most important rocket issue, which at that time was defense. The committee feared that the country might get pulled into a highly costly venture whose only justification was prestige. And they issued a stern warning, quote, space activities are so unbelievably expensive and people working in this field are so imaginative that the space program could easily grow to cost many more billions of dollars per year. Now, in contrast to most Americans, Wiesner realized that, quote, in spite of the limitations of our in our capability of lifting heavy payloads, we now hold a leadership in space science. Nor would that lead change if the Soviets were the first to put a man into orbit. The committee maintained that the U.S. should build on this lead but always with science as its top priority. It recognized that doing so would prove more difficult if attention was diverted toward man in space. The committee felt that the main problem with NASA was that engineers, not scientists, dominated the engine agency. This explained the enthusiasm for man in space, which was a very interesting engineering problem. The committee accepted that a crash program aimed at placing a man into orbit at the earliest possible time cannot be justified solely on scientific or technical grounds. Indeed, it may hinder the development of our scientific and technical program, they said. The group regretted that the popularity of the Mercury astronauts had, quote, strengthened the popular belief that man in space is the most important aim of our non-military space effort. The manner in which this program has been publicized in our press has further crystallized such belief. It exaggerates the value of that aspect of our space activity where we are less likely to achieve success and discounts those aspects in which we have already achieved great success. In other words, the U.S. was walking into a trap. There followed a stern warning, quote, a failure in our first attempt to place a man into orbit resulting in the death of an astronaut, would create a situation of serious national embarrassment. An even more serious situation would result 
if we fail to safely recover a man from orbit. Wiesner had warned that the space program, rather like Vietnam, was like a quagmire that threatened to engulf the new administration. He realized that the most glaring problem at this stage was that the program lacked coherent purpose. The American people had been led to believe that putting a man in space was essential, yet that goal threatened other far more important pursuits like national security. Though Kennedy had received the advice he wanted from Wiesner, whether he could act on it, given what he had said about space during the campaign, was another matter. And it is significant that Kennedy failed to make any significant mention of space in his inaugural address. Further evidence that he was keen to downplay the issue came a month later when he told the press, quote, we are very concerned that we do not put a man in space in order to gain some additional prestige and have a man take disproportionate risks so where we are going to be extremely careful. Clearly revealing the influence of Wiesner, he suggested that it would not bother him if the next great victory in space went to the Soviets. Quote, even if we should come in second in putting a man in space, I will be satisfied if when we finally do put a man in space, his chances of survival are as high as I think they should be. Wiesner's caution explains why the first man in space was Russian. On 31st of January 1961, the U.S. successfully launched the chimpanzee Ham into space and recovered him safely. NASA had intended to follow that mission quickly with a suborbital flight by Alan Shepard on 24th of March. But that flight was postponed because of concerns about the way Ham's rocket had performed. NASA was undoubtedly aware of Wiesner's worries, namely that if the first American in space died, that would kill the program. Needless to say, Shepard was furious at being denied the opportunity to be the first in space. American caution cleared the way for Gagarin. In newspapers around the world, his mission on the 12th of April, 1961, was presented as an American failure as much as a Soviet success. The New York Times pointed out that JFK, quote, had attempted to present himself as a young, active, and vigorous leader of a strong and advancing nation. Unfortunately, however, none of Kennedy's achievements have had the effectiveness of the spectacular quality of Soviet efforts. Gagarin was Kennedy's Sputnik. Like it or not, prestige was again pushed to the fore. For the American people, Kennedy's reaction was uncomfortably reminiscent of the complacent Eisenhower. I do not regret the first man in space as a sign of weakening of the free world, he argued. When journalists asked Kennedy, was he tired of being in second place, he replied, however tired anybody may be, it is a fact that it will be some time before we catch up. We are, I hope, going to go into other areas where we can be first and which will bring some more long-range benefits to mankind. Those remarks were, of course, a dish cooked for journalists. In private, Kennedy was panicking. Is there any place we can catch them? He asked a small group of experts who had gathered at the White House. Wiesner again counseled caution, while the budget director, David Bell, warned Kennedy about the huge cost. 
But Kennedy was by this stage determined to push forward. Quote, when we know more, I can decide if it's worth it or not. If somebody can just tell me how to catch up, let's find somebody, anybody. I don't care if it's the janitor over there. If he knows how, nothing is more important. The Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev was a master of bluff. He encouraged ordinary Americans to believe that because Gagarin was able to orbit the, the Earth, that was proof that the Soviet Union had a huge arsenal of ICBMs ready to rain down on American cities. In fact, they had nothing of the sort. Ironically, due to American advantages in satellite surveillance, the White House knew how things stood, but for the sake of secrecy, it could not reveal what it knew. As a result, the American people concluded that they were desperately behind. In fact, in the areas that mattered to their security, they were probably five years ahead. While Kennedy was desperately trying to show a brave face, a second disaster occurred. On 17 April, the U.S. sent a puppet army of disgruntled Cuban exiles into the Bay of Pigs. According to the CIA scenario, the superbly trained soldiers were supposed to spark a popular revolution which would topple Fidel Castro. As we know, things didn't quite work out that way. The operation was crushed, leaving Kennedy deeply embarrassed. The U.S., it seemed, could do nothing right. At a press conference on the 21st of April, a reporter pointedly remarked, quote, you don't seem to be pushing the space program nearly as energetically now as you suggested during the campaign. Kennedy insisted that great progress was being made, but then reminded journalists that, quote, it is possible to spend billions of dollars in these projects in space to the detriment of other programs and still not be successful. Kennedy had come to appreciate the trap that he had built himself. Now, I don't want to start spending that kind of money without making a determination based on careful scientific judgments as to whether a real success can be achieved or whether because we are so far behind now in this particular race, we are going to be second in this decade. In other words, being behind in the space race wasn't quite the disaster Kennedy had said before the election. He added, I don't think we ought to rush into it until we really know where we are going to end up. That was sensible, but also in the circumstances, indefensible. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Kennedy prepared the ground for a major space initiative. On 20th of April, he asked the Vice President Lyndon Johnson to find a contest America might win. He asked him, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, or a trip around the moon, or by a rocket to land on the moon, or by a rocket to go to the moon and back with a man? Is there any other space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? Glenn Wilson, who had spent 19 years as a professional staffer on the Senate Space Committee, feels that the phrasing of that request or that question was significant. Wilson said, the very first question, what can we do to beat the Russians? He didn't say, what can we do to advance the scientific effort here? What can we do to find out if we send scientists to the moon? 
He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, what can we do to beat the Russians? In Johnson's group of experts, scientists were conspicuous by their absence. To LBJ's delight, Werner von Braun enthusiastically promoted a moon mission and suggested that all other priorities be put on the back burner, including satellite research, to achieve that goal. One of LBJ's business cronies, Donald Cook, stressed the matter of prestige. He insisted that space spectaculars, by demonstrating, quote, technical proficiency and industrial strength, were key to attracting the support of non-allied nations in Latin America and Africa during the Cold War. Enthusiastic support came unexpectedly from Robert McNamara, the Defense Secretary. He was intent on cutting the defense budget, but did not want to fall behind in ICBM research. Fortunately, NASA was a civilian agency, which was a crucial distinction. By supporting NASA, McNamara ensured that vast sums could be funneled into the aerospace industry, but not appear on the defense um, secretary's budget. The, the industry giants, including Lockheed, General Dynamics, and Douglas, were in deep financial trouble at the time and crying out for government help. McNamara liked the idea that they would be rescued by a moon mission and the costs would never show up on his ledgers. According to Wiesner, the opportunity to rescue the aerospace industry took away the argument against the space program as far as Kennedy was concerned. Johnson's report, dated the 28th of April, had the effect of a battering ram. First came the prestige argument. Quote, dramatic accomplishments in space are being increasingly identified as a major indicator of world leadership. Then came warnings of an emergency. If we do not make the strong effort now, the time will come when we will not be able to catch up. The solution was to make the race winnable by making it longer and more complicated. This meant going to the moon, a race that Americans might just be able to win. Around this time, NASA's Robert Gilruth told Kennedy why a lunar mission made sense. I said, well, you've got to pick a job that's so difficult that it's new, that they'll have to start from scratch. The Russians can't just take their old rocket and put another gimmick on it and do something we can't do. It's got to be something that requires a great big rocket, like going to the moon. Going to the moon will take new rockets, new technology. And if you want to do that, I think our country could probably win because we both have to start from scratch. The endeavor was also finite, the better to sustain public support, because Kennedy realized that the public would not sign on to an open-ended space program. The public would not be asked to make a long-term commitment, but would instead be asked to finance a relatively short race. A space program was also attractive to Kennedy and Johnson for reasons entirely distinct from space or the Cold War. Both men were interested in social regeneration, and both were keen on New Deal-style work programs to encourage economic growth 
and help the deprived. But Kennedy had won the election by a very small margin and was dependent upon fiscally conservative Southern Democrats who did not want to spend huge sums of money on social welfare. Space was an opportunity to hide a massive domestic spending budget within a Cold War Trojan horse. Conservative Democrats who might otherwise have been inclined to reject such a program would support it if they felt it was an essential part of the struggle against communism. Now, with all his ducks in the line, Kennedy formally proposed a bold new initiative. On 21st of May, 1961, he told Congress, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. For Kennedy, the idea at first seemed sensible, a solution to so many problems. It would put Americans to work, unite them behind a common goal, and allow them to prove their superiority to the Russians. But the cost was astronomical, dwarfing what was being spent on the war on poverty or federal aid to education at the time. And those programs were very dear to Kennedy. The real worry for Kennedy was that the adventure in space would prevent him from asking Congress to fund programs much closer to his heart. But he could not kill the program because he had argued that it was essential to the prestige and the security of the United States. The space program was ring-fenced by Cold War fears. And this explains why, soon after making the commitment to go to the moon, Kennedy immediately began looking for ways to stop the race, in particular by proposing a joint venture with the Soviets. But both sides, there were actually some um, overtures made, particularly by Robert Kennedy. But both sides soon realized that it was the race, not the moon itself, that was most important. Removing the competitive element would expose just how shallow the venture was, since neither side had yet explained why the moon was important other than as a finishing line. The Washington Post reported in April 1963 that a visitor to the White House challenged Kennedy on whether it really mattered if the U.S. went to the moon. In a brief moment of candor, the president replied, Don't you think I would rather spend these billions on programs here at home, such as health and education and welfare. But in this matter, we have no choice. The nation's prestige is too heavily involved. According to Wiesner, Kennedy saw the moon as a solution to an earthly dilemma. Quote, we were paying a price internationally, politically, and that was the issue the president was dealing with. Not was it time to go to the moon or not, but how to get yourself out of this. We talked a lot about, do we have to do this? And Kennedy replied, well, it's your fault. If you had a scientific spectacular on this earth that would be more useful, say, desalting the ocean, or something that is just as dramatic and convincing as space, then we could do that. Wiesner was always of the opinion, quote, if Kennedy could have opted out of a big space program without hurting the country, he would have. 
It was a decision he made cold-bloodedly. Now, thanks to Kennedy, Americans were on their way to the moon. But the reasons they were going were not those of the early space dreamers like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky or Robert Goddard. Going to the moon had nothing to do with exploring the cosmos or understanding the origins of the universe, as far as Kennedy was concerned. The decision was based on cold, hard politics. McNamara needed to save the aerospace industry. Johnson wanted to restore American prestige. Congress worried about losing influence in the third world. Senators wanted fat contracts for their states. Kennedy needed to rescue his image after the Bay of Pigs. Everyone wanted to beat the Russians. America would go to the moon for all the wrong reasons. If good reasons ever existed, they had been burned, they had been buried under a pile of politics. Now the NASA administrator, James Webb, always regretted the way the moon mission was turned into a race with its distinct finish line and therefore a distinct end. As he later explained, the public's goal was not NASA's goal. Quote, the lunar project for us was little more than a realistic requirement for space competence. And when the politicians, including the president, tended to say, well, gee, we've got a tight budget, just concentrate on getting to the moon, we always said, no, our objective must be broader. Webb would struggle with this problem throughout his career at NASA. He understood that the public and the president thought in terms of a single goal. But he also understood that such a goal was like fixing a date for the demise of NASA. The difference between Kennedy and Webb was rudely revealed at a meeting on the 21st of November, 1962, when the president reviewed NASA's priorities. Webb made it clear that getting to the moon was one objective of the space agency, but not the only one, nor was it the most important one. Kennedy reacted angrily to that. Quote, this is more important for political reasons, international political reasons. And this is, whether we like it or not, a race. Being second to the moon is nice, but it's like being second any time. He gave Webb an airful. Everything that we do should be tied into getting to the moon ahead of the Russians. We ought to get it really clear that the policy ought to be that this is the top priority program of the agency and one of the top priorities of the United States government. Otherwise, we shouldn't be spending this kind of money because I'm not that interested in space. We're talking about fantastic expenditures. We've wrecked our budget and all these other domestic programs. And the only justification for it, in my opinion, is to do it in the time element I'm asking, to beat the Russians. It was at that meeting that Webb realized the limitations of his remit. His job was to take Americans to the moon. Nothing more, nothing less. Thus it was Gagarin who dragged Kennedy by the nose into space. Historians are not supposed to deal in counterfactuals. But it is nevertheless interesting to speculate on what might have happened if Alan Shepard had been the first man in space. That would have removed the embarrassment that kick-started the lunar project. At the time, no clear consensus about what America should do in space was apparent. 
It was by no means certain that the limit goals of the engineers would win out over the visions of the space scientists. Budgetary restraints still seemed important, as did the concept of value for money. Taking all this into consideration, it is not certain that the U.S., or indeed the Soviet Union, would have entered into a race toward the moon. On 21 July 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. Norman Mailer, part of the press corps in Houston, noted how reporters didn't wait for Armstrong to finish his moonwalk. They left the room en masse without pausing to see what interesting rocks the astronauts might find. The journalists had their story. The story was landing on the moon. That's what all the effort, all the excitement, and all the tragedy of the previous 10 years had all been about. The reporters understood that the race was over. Kennedy's reaction to the Gagarin embarrassment set a pattern for space ventures, which remains apparent to this day. The main reason the Americans have not returned to the moon is because they originally went for the wrong reason. Once the race had been won and a point proved, there was little sense in going again for scientific reasons. By the same token, as the ambitions of China and India now indicate, the moon became, thanks to Kennedy, a gold standard, a test of a nation's virility, important not for what could be achieved in space, but for the prestige that could be garnered back on Earth. Thank you.